Please turn with me to Leviticus 16, and I invite you to read verses 15 to 29 along with me in your Bibles as I read them. This is a portion of um, the passage in Leviticus that describes the Day of Atonement, and we want to look at it this morning. So Leviticus 16, beginning at verse 15. Then he, that is Aaron, he the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. O Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and you are the goat, the one bearing the wrath of God to a lonely, desolate place, consumed by that wrath, bearing the sins of your people forever away from the presence of the Father. Grant us your spirit as we think this morning about your word and its implications for us, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Things happen to you when you go to another country for a couple of weeks. You forget stuff. And um, I just want to acknowledge my 
frailty and forgetfulness and tell you the reason this service is so packed with stuff this morning, wonderful stuff, is because I'm forgetful. I forgot both that we were receiving members and that we were having a baptism on June 1st. That's pretty big stuff to forget. But we did it. Um, and uh, that's why I skipped over the hymn and didn't have us sing the hymn. And I'm you know, just trying to be mindful of the fact that I'm no longer in Africa where services last for three hours. And that's the other thing that you have to adjust to when you come back. Um, so here we are. Maybe it'll be an hour and a half. I don't know. We'll see. Services are long. They start at 9.30, and I tell you, sometimes they're not done until 12.30, and it's a glorious thing. They have choirs. They have dancing. They have stuff. I mean, this is the only time in the week that these people communicate with each other. They don't have phones. They don't have email. They don't have a way to touch. So they have to communicate everything that needs to be communicated week by week in their services, and they just do everything when they gather for worship on Sunday morning. So... I always have to remember that when I come back to the States after having been in Africa. Got to be mindful of the audience. So, No matter where you go in the world, um, whether it's here in the United States to another place or uh, to Africa, there are two things that you are confronted with. They're inescapable. They're just inescapable unless you're in denial, which all of us are to some extent. Uh, but these are two things that are just undeniable, undeniable no matter where you go, inescapable no matter where you go in the world. And they are these. Life is broken. Life is broken. Life is badly, badly, badly broken. It gets pasted over pretty nicely in the United States of America. It gets whitewashed pretty nicely in the United States of America. But every once in a while, the real brokenness of life breaks through the whitewash, busts through the plastic veneers that we cover it all with, and we feel the real effects of the brokenness of life. Some of you in this room have felt it very, very recently. Life is broken. It's badly broken. It looks different in Africa than it does here, but it's inescapable in both places. And the second thing that you are confronted with no matter where you go is that people are flawed. Deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. Which is to say, using the Bible's language, that with respect to life generally, we live under a curse. We live under a curse, the curse of death. And it's everywhere. And which is to say, with respect to deeply flawed people, that we are sinners. The text of Leviticus several times uses the word unclean. There are other words in the Bible that describe what is wrong with us at the core of our being, that we are ungodly, that we are fundamentally at odds with God, seeking to live life apart from God on our own terms, at our own peril. We are unrighteous, we are impure, we are evil, we are wicked, we are twisted, we are crooked. All of these are words, different words in the Bible that describe 
what we're talking about when we say that human beings are deeply, deeply flawed. And those are just some of the words that are used. So no matter where you go, life is broken, badly, badly, badly broken. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a little spirit and became scrambled eggs. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. It's life. And we are flawed, deeply, deeply flawed. And it's these two things, this twofold reality, that the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the great good news, it's these two realities that the gospel of hope addresses. That life is broken and that people are deeply flawed. The gospel of the kingdom tells us that a warrior king has come. A warrior king has come, and he has inaugurated his kingdom, and he is, right now, overthrowing evil, and he is overthrowing the evil one. And he is, right now, delivering all of life from the curse and out from under its bondage to death. He is directing all of history all of human history to this glorious end when he will fully and finally and irrevocably remove all of the brokenness of life, finish his work of recreation, and bring to completion a new heaven and a new earth where there is no death and no dying and no tears. And it is the great good news that this warrior king who opposes evil, who is bent upon rightly, righteously destroying all evil and the evil one, this warrior king did not do what he was justly, legitimately able to do. And that is destroy all evil and wickedness. He didn't do it. Because if he had, which he was just to do, righteous to do, here's what would have happened. He would have recovered the creation. He would have restored the creation. He would have established the creation as the new heaven and the new earth and the place where his rule and reign would be exerted to the uttermost parts of the cosmos and there would be no citizens in that kingdom. If the warrior king had destroyed the serpent and all evil overthrown the evil one, that would have included us. But the warrior king laid aside his glory, laid aside his power, laid aside his authority, and as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 
took the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death for sinners, for those who are twisted and evil and unrighteous and as Leviticus 16 tells us, unclean. And the whole of the Old Testament prepares us for the coming of this King and Savior. And the whole of the New Testament describes that he has come and explains the significance of his coming. Those are the two things that I taught about in Tanzania. Those are the two things that I taught about in Tanzania. Those are the two things that I preached about in Africa. They're the only things worth talking about. The hope of the gospel of restoration and reclamation. The restoration of heaven and earth to a condition of pristine glory and wonder and beauty where the rule and reign of a righteous, loving, compassionate, good, just king is exerted to the uttermost parts, not just of the earth, but to the full extent of the cosmos. In the determination of that warrior king to lay down his life so that that kingdom of righteousness might be populated, populated with citizens who once had been rebels but who now live under the rule and reign of their gracious king. That's what I taught about, preached about, talked about, answered questions about for eight days in Tanzania. And that's the gospel, my friends. That's the great good news, both of those things, the big picture thing and the very small picture and very personal picture of individuals who are rescued from themselves, from themselves and their own sinfulness and wickedness. Those, look, you don't want to think of yourselves that way. But that is the way the Bible talks about us, about you and me. That we're estranged from God, that there is a hostility, there is a separation, there is a rebellion, it is willful, it is not pretty. And those are the words that are used to describe it, all of the words that I've previously used. And what God has done is give his son to do something about it. The passage that we're looking at, Leviticus 16, is a passage, frankly, that could be looked at for a couple of hours, a couple of days, a couple of weeks. You can continue to tease marvelous symbolism out of what is presented for us here. But there are two words that are precious, precious words for every Christian, and they come out of this passage. They're not themselves specifically in this passage. They're two words that summarize what is going on in this passage, and they are the words substitution and imputation. Write them down. Write them down. Substitution and imputation. And these are the things that I talked about in Tanzania. And it's very important for us to have a clear, I mean, it's just, these are great words. Wonderful words for you to have in your working vocabulary so that when your conscience accuses you, so that when the evil one rises up 
to tear you down, to rob you of your joy. You can, you can use these words. You can say, no, no, there is a substitute. There's one who took my place. And as, as Martin Luther did when the devil came at Luther and, and read to Luther the riot act, the proverbial riot act, read to him all of the list of accusations, Luther said to the devil, you're right, you're right, you're right, it's all true, every single bit of it. And do you know what, devil? Go back to hell because I have a substitute. Go back to hell, devil, because the substitute bore my sin. My sin was imputed to him. And so, devil, when you remind me of all the accusations brought against me, rightly brought against me, all you're doing is reminding me of the greatness of God, my Savior, and so I will slit your throat with your own words. Substitution. Imputation. We did Q&A every day in Tanzania. Could have gone on for hours. Every time we said we have to stop, there were a dozen hands in the air. These are pastors and pastors' wives. And one of the wives, precious, precious Elizabeth Cachetto, raised her hand and said, if I fall into sin today and die tonight before I repent, will I go to heaven? And I said, if you die, if you fall into sin today and you die tonight before you repent, you will wake up in the arms of Jesus because your repentance does not save you. Jesus does. And Jesus does because he is a substitute. And Jesus does because my sins have been credited to him, imputed to him. That's what you see in this passage. There are two goats. The two goats portray these ideas of substitution and imputation. The first goat is slain, just as the lamb was slain back in Exodus 12 on the Passover night. You remember the story of the Passover, that the head of every household was to select a spotless lamb or goat without defect. Spotless, innocent. When John saw Jesus, what did he say of Jesus? When John was about to baptize Jesus, what did he say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the spotless, innocent, blameless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is a spotless Lamb. Twice in Jesus' ministry, Maybe three times. I can never remember if it's two or three, but I know it was twice. At his baptism and later, even more significantly, at the Mount of Transfiguration. The heavens are parted. The Father speaks. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the reason it's more significant at the Mount of Transfiguration is because Elijah and Moses are there representing the law and the prophets, conveying to us the idea that Jesus with whom the Father is pleased, is the fulfillment of both. He is the fulfillment of the prophets, everything that they say, and he is the fulfillment of everything that Moses wrote. He obeyed and kept the law perfectly. All of those Ten Commandments that you read through this morning, every one of which I have violated, and the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself, 
every one of the commandments Jesus perfectly fulfilled. From his first moments out of the womb until his last breath on the cross. Always loving the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself. Innocent, pure, perfect. At the end of his life, no accusation could be brought against him. And so you see he qualifies to be what? The substitute. He is innocent. He is pure. He is spotless. Read Exodus 12. He is not only innocent and pure, he is also precious. You remember in the passage, you remember in the text that the father is to select this spotless sacrifice and is to take it into the house and this spotless sacrifice remains in the house for four days. It comes into the house on the 10th day. It stays in the house until the 14th day. What do little children do with a spotless, innocent lamb? With a little baby goat. I've got a picture of a, of a black goat in my pictures that I took. I wanted to pick it up. It was just so cuddly and cute. You understand that the sacrifice is not only pure and innocent, but precious. You remember Genesis 22 when Abraham took his son, his only precious son, upon whom all of his hopes and dreams were fixed. And you understand something of what goes on at the cross, that the father gave his precious son the one whom he loved, the one in whom he delights. You remember when we talked about the love of God in the past, that God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, infinite and eternal, not bound by time, not bound by space, limitless in every respect, that means that his love is limitless. That means that his affection for his son is without bound. It is without qualification. He loves his son infinitely. Precious is his son. The substitute is innocent, the substitute is precious, and the substitute is slaughtered. Slaughtered in Exodus 12 and slaughtered in Leviticus 16. You see, there is one that dies for another. And the blood, you know, this it's a bloody book, isn't it? It's a bloody book. People are very often repulsed by this idea of blood. Blood everywhere. Blood all over this passage. Bulls, goats, repeatedly blood. And where does the blood go? You know where the blood goes? The blood goes into the holy of holies, the very holy place. What makes it so holy? What makes it so holy is that the holy God is there. He dwells above the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on either side of his glorious presence. And where do they put the blood? They sprinkle the blood on what is called the mercy seat, on the top, on the horns of the Ark of the Covenant. You see? And what is in the Ark of the Covenant? The law. The law. And what does the law confront us with? God's holiness and our unholiness. And you see the blood comes between a holy God and the law. The blood covers the violations of the law so that when God looks, looks, not that he has to look, he sees everything, knows everything, but when he looks, he sees the blood of the substitute. 
and not the offenses. The substitute, innocent, innocent, precious, and slaughtered. His blood is spread. And then there's a second goat. The second goat. And oh, don't you wish. Oh, don't you wish that Cecil B. DeMille could get a hold of this and portray it on the silver screen in some way that would capture the drama and the glory and the wonder of what is transpiring in Leviticus 16 with the second goat. The first goat dies. But then the second goat, verse 21, is brought in to the midst of the assembly of the people. And you see what the priest does? The priest places his hands upon the head of the goat and confesses the sins of the people. All of their sins, all of their transgressions, all of their uncleanness, all their sins. He confesses over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel. If you read through Leviticus, the first five chapters, eight times in the first five chapters of Leviticus, somebody puts his hands on the head of a sacrifice. Sometimes it's a father. Sometimes it's the head of a clan. Sometimes it's a priest. Eight different times. But not one of those eight times is there an indication to us of what it is that is happening and why it is that that priest or head of a clan or father is putting his hands on the head of the sacrifice. It's not until Leviticus 16 that we have the explanation for what is going on. It's in Leviticus 16 that the high priest, taking up all of the symbolism of fathers and heads of clans and heads of tribes and priests, gathering up all of the symbolism, all of those occasions where someone puts his hands on the head of a sacrifice, the high priest gathers it all up in this one act and places his hands on the head of this goat and transfers, transfers, do you hear this? Transfers from the people, through himself the priest, to the goat, all of the iniquity of the people, all of it. I said to Elizabeth Cachetto and the other 200 plus pastors and wives who were gathered for the conference, Jesus, Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. And when Jesus confesses the sins of his people and takes the sins of his people away from them and transfers them to himself, he takes all of it. All of it. It was funny. I said, he takes what, he takes what was yesterday's sins. And then I said, and he takes the sins that you're committing right now. Right now. Here I am speaking to these wonderful pastors and their wives. And, and I said, you know, maybe you're not even listening to me. Maybe you're falling asleep. Here I am, a herald of the greatest good news the world has ever heard, the greatest gospel that has ever been heard, and you're falling asleep. And this is like pennies off a brass pot. And that's sin. I mean, maybe you were out too late last night, and that was your sin, and that's why you're falling asleep this morning. I don't know. 
levity, you know? Whatever it is that's going on in your heart right now, the high priest took it away from you and he transferred it to himself. And not only yesterday and today, but tomorrow. Because folks, you will get up in the morning and though your heart's desire may be for you to live a sinless day, you won't do it. Nor will you live a sinless day the next day or the day after that. And all of that sin, whether it's in the heart, in the mind, in the words you speak, in the actions of your, whatever it is, whatever that sin is, Jesus took it all away from you. And the great high priest transferred it to him. So that's what substitution leads to, is the idea of a transfer, imputation, crediting to the account of another. He took it away from you. He took it to himself. And he was slaughtered, bearing it. And then there's this last little bit of the drama. This, this goat isn't slaughtered. The sin is transferred to the head of the goat. And there is a man who is, I love the text, there is a man who is waiting in readiness. That'll preach. Jesus wasn't reluctant to do this. Jesus was not hesitant to do this. The Father was not hesitant for the Son to do it. The Father and the Son were in readiness to bear the sins of their people out away from the camp into the wilderness, into a place, a remote place, where that goat itself would die. You see, this, you see the symbolism, the picture here. The sin, the thing that separates the God of holiness and righteousness from his people is removed. It's gone. It's gone away. And just as the goat who when led out into the wilderness to a remote area would be consumed, would be devoured, would be destroyed by lions and tigers and leopards. So Jesus, on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, was consumed, was consumed bearing that sin, was destroyed, was engulfed, was overwhelmed by the wrath of God. Matthew 27 describes the crucifixion of Jesus, and Jesus' words from the cross are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? People will say, they will make the comment in referring to that passage that it was at that moment that the Father turned away from the Son and left the Son alone to die and nothing could be further from the truth. The Father did not turn away from the Son. The holy, righteous judge of the universe turned upon his Son who had become an object of horror in his sight as a sin bearer and he unleashed the full measure of the wrath that he possessed upon his son as the substitute bearing the sins of his people, all of it, past, present, and future. So Elizabeth Cachetto and anyone in this room who wonders, do I have to repent more? 
Do I have to try harder? Do I have to be more faithful? Do I have to work? Do I have to pray? Do I have to read? Do I have to give? Do I have to, what do I, I mean, is there something I need to do? The answer to all of that stuff is give it up. Give it up. Jesus has taken all of your sin, all of your disobedience. If you're a Christian this morning, there is nothing, nothing that you can do, that you need do to secure the forgiveness of Almighty God, to secure His love and favor, favor, to secure the assurance of His presence. There is nothing, no praying, no working, no reading, no dying. It is simply turning to the one who is a substitute, who has borne the sins of his people. And just as was true in Exodus 12, when the blood was painted across the doorposts and lintels of that house, you come under that cross and you are safe and secure from every harm. Every harm. That's what substitution and imputation do. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you don't, if you don't know what this business is all about, I, I have to implore you, as Paul did with the Corinthians, I have to implore you that you pray, that you seek God, that you call upon him, that you ask him that by his spirit he would open your eyes to see these things because there is one place and one place only of safety and security, and that is underneath that blood. That is across that threshold into that house where the blood is spread across the doorposts and lintels. That's the only safe place there is in the whole universe. The only safe place. And that doorpost and those lintels are Jesus Christ who has shed his blood and who calls upon sinners to turn and come to him come into his house to be safe and secure from every form of harm. That, in summary, is what we talked about for eight days in Tanzania to 200 pastors, spouses, and the questions never stopped. And the joy, I have to tell you, that they experienced and we experienced as we reminded ourselves of these things was palpable. It was palpable. This is the gospel for the nations. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and favor. Thank you so much for giving us a substitute. Thank you so much for taking our sins away from us, for transferring them to the Son. Would you please, by your Spirit, be at work in our hearts. Open our eyes, open our hearts, give us grace to see, to understand, to believe these things and to know, to know the freedom, the assurance that come to us when we cross that threshold and live in that house. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number 660. Both verses.